Let's just pray again. Oh, Lord, you have heard the song that we've just sung, asking you to come and impact us and impact the world that was made for the glory of God. How we pray that you will fill us now with your spirit and that you'll guide us through your word so that our wills may be shaped according to yours, that your kingdom may come and your will be, may be done in us and through us. For your glory and the good of all, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those of you who have been here, obviously you know, but there may be that some of you haven't been here before uh, or you're watching for the first time online. And so just a bit of background to this passage. In our last study on Romans 8, we discovered how Paul seemed to get so frustrated and desperate, having spent seven whole chapters of his letter to the Romans uh, spelling out, that every human being, regardless of Jewish or Gentile descent, is born with a rampant disease, a disease of the heart that's called sin. And that disease impacts every thought and word and deed, every living moment. And the bad news is that such sin renders us guilty in the sight of God, the God who made us to live very differently, to display his righteousness to a world that needs him. And the picture's made all the more bleak by Paul's clear teaching that no amount of the do's and don'ts of religious rituals or sacrifices can quench God's wrath or rescue us from perpetual slavery to sin. So, like a doctor giving his somber assessment to a struggling patient, Paul's message begins with an honest look at the mess in our world and in our own hearts. And it's pretty depressing, if we're honest. All of us have sinned and fall short of God's righteous standard. And in the end, that's what matters. It's what he wants, not what anyone else wants. And then we read that the wages of our sin, the consequences, the result, is death, both spiritually and physically. And so having spilled out his guts in chapter 7, describing the battle that he can't do the things that he wants to do, and he ends up doing bad things that he hates doing instead, his heart bursts out in a desperate cry of desolation in chapter 7 and verses 24 and 25. What a wretched man I am, he says. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? He's at the end of himself. It's as though he has tried every worldly means that he can find through education and religious activity to kill this disease called sin. But sin is still messing him up big time, making him feel as guilty as hell, literally, and longing, longing for something more, something deeper, something satisfying in this life. Well, I know as I look in your faces that every single one of us knows what that feels like too, don't we? Every one of us. Because sin is pandemic. We feel wretched and alone like Robinson Crusoe on a desert island because we know that we are helplessly enslaved by sinful thoughts and words and deeds. And the famous writer C.S. Lewis, who's very famous in this part of the world because he came from Belfast, uh, he, he describes his awakening regarding this enslavement, this problem, this mess in his life. He wrote in a book called Surprised by Joy these words. He says, for the first time, I examined myself with a, serious, a seriously practical purpose, and there I found what appalled me, a zoo of lusts, 
a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of hatreds. My name was Legion. Now, if you don't know, Legion is the name of a man who Jesus met, whose life was beset by a whole troop of destructive demons. And so the overarching message of the first seven chapters of Romans is that human life is sin-riddled and condemned as a result of an inner battle between our sinful nature and that rebels against God and our God-given spirit that longs to be released from slavery to sin. And I suppose then the big question in the light of all that is, is there anybody out there who can help us? Can anybody rescue me from this mediocre life and terrifying judgment that lies ahead of the mountain of sin, because of the mountain of sin that I have built up every day of my life, sin after sin after sin building up the record against me? And so one day I'm going to have to answer to God for all of that. Is there anybody who can help me? Well, thank God the great news is the answer that the answer is yes, it's a resounding yes. And it's such great news that every one of us who has experienced release from bondage to sin, we need to get out there and tell everybody about it. Because, you know, it's a journey that we go on. We have to be honest and say that it's a very humbling thing when we've come to the end of ourselves. You just feel bereft. You've used every tool that the world has to offer to sort out your mess, and yet your toolbox is now empty. You have nowhere else to turn. Your heart still feels wretched. You know that you're utterly helpless. Well, you know what? The Lord Jesus talked about that crisis in the very first words of his manifesto for the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1, the very first words. And it's both surprising and exciting because he says that you're actually blessed when you become destitute in spirit. You become blessed. Why? Because it's only then when you've tried all of the things that the world can offer and failed miserably that you're finally ready to look beyond this world, beyond your own failed faculties, beyond your useless self and look up to him for a supernatural solution. Isn't that good? And that's a eureka moment in our lives whenever we come to that point that we realize that we are sinners and we can't help ourselves and we need somebody to help ourselves, but we don't know where to look. But then we discover it's a eureka moment, a light bulb moment when suddenly your spiritually blind eyes are opened and you can see and your heart bursts with a joy that you've never, ever experienced before as you realize that you, yes, you, with all your mess and faults and failings can avail of all the resources of heaven. As Jesus Christ rids your life, quite literally, of all of the blightedness of hell, both now every day that you live on this earth and in the life beyond your earthly sojourn. Jesus said these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the whole kingdom of heaven. Wow! Wow! It's wonderful. And decades later, Paul ends Romans 7 
with an anthem. When this light bulb moment is given in the midst of the mess, an anthem that echoes through the whole cosmos, bringing hope of new life, not just for sinful people like you and me, but also for our world that has been groaning since God cursed it after sin entered into the world thousands of years ago when Adam and Eve fell. We'll hear that in our next study. And so Paul lifts his head up and he throws his hands in the air and he shouts, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wow. And then Romans 8 begins with another anthem, the best news that any desperate sinner can ever hear. If any of you like me have had to stand before a judge in a courtroom, I'll not ask you to show your hands, but I did once upon a time a courtroom full of people feeling so ashamed, so embarrassed, so vulnerable, full of fear and trepidation. If you've had that experience where you've had to stand before a judge and your demeanors are read out and you have to answer. And then the judge says these magic words, I'm recommending an unconditional discharge. You're free to go. Wow. You have no idea how good that is. But any of you who have had that experience will have some small understanding of the life-changing impact of, on every guilty sinner's heart of Romans chapter 8 and verses 1 and 2 as we discover the way that enables us to leave the quagmire of crippling sin. To leave it, the, the quagmire of crippling sin and struggle and judgment and be lifted up to the Mount Everest of the whole Bible. And whenever you read it, it seems too good to be true. But listen, it is true. It's gloriously and experientially true for many of the people who are sitting beside you here in church right now. And the great news is that it can be true for you as well if you're willing to embrace what Jesus Christ has done to rescue you from a life of mediocrity and misery. Paul writes, there is now... Therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Wow. Every single word in these verses is pregnant with meaning for followers of Jesus because they describe the supernatural key not natural, not of this world, not something you or do, can do or earn or anything to do with you. Your tools are lying on the ground, useless. The supernatural key that enables them to live lives, to, that enables you to live lives that glorify God and bless the people that you meet for Jesus' sake. The word therefore at the very beginning indicates that Paul is now drawing a conclusion to all that's been written in chapters 1 to 7. So at last the cloud lifts and it creates anticipation as we wait with bated breath for the way to freedom to be revealed. And we're not disappointed. Hallelujah. We're not disappointed. And the word now makes everything so currently available. It means right now, this very moment, right now. Hear me, if you're a sinner and you know that you're in a mess and you feel condemned, right now is the moment for you. Right now. But it's not just right now. It's not right, just right now, this moment, but it's every moment that you will ever live. It's eternally present. 
Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8 tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so it follows that the work that he has done for helpless sinners like you and like me at the cross, the empty tomb, and on the throne of heaven is also the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the word tetelestai echoes through the ages of human history. What's that? Well, that's the word that Jesus declared into the heavenlies as he hung on the cross, bearing judgment for your sin and mine. In our place, quenching the wrath of Almighty God that every one of us deserved for our rebellion and sinfulness, so that he might declare us righteous in God's sight. And so Jesus cried out, Tetelestai, it's finished! Because he knew that his mission was complete that the way of salvation was now made fully available to wretched sinners like you and me. And as a result, he knew that every time God would look at humble sinners like you or like me, who are in Christ, he would see Jesus. And God would declare no condemnation. I'm recommending a full and unconditional discharge on those who trust in my son. You're free to go. You're free to go. Hallelujah. This is the best news that any human being can ever hear. But oh, please be here, be clear about this tonight. It's here very clearly in the scriptures that this unconditional discharge is only available for people who are in Christ Jesus. Not one of us was born that way, and we all know fine well that we can't do anything in our own strength to make ourselves that way. And that's why Jesus told one of the most sincere religious people in the world that even he had to be born again from above, because you see, religion kills. What does this mean, to be born again from above? Well, you can read the story in John chapter 3. Jesus makes it clear that the agent of this spiritual transformation from the inside out is the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Godhead, who lives in the mystery of a perfect divine community with Jesus and God the Father. And in John chapter 3 and verse 5, Jesus says, very, very truly I tell you, listen, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. That's describing how every one of us got the life that we now live in our bodies. But the Spirit gives birth to Spirit, Jesus said. So you should not be surprised at my saying you, and that word you is in the plural in the Greek here, meaning everyone must be born again. And the Greek there for born again is meaning literally from above. And then he says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It's interesting because Jesus is playing a word game here in these verses. He uses the Greek word pneuma in different ways to speak of the wind and of the Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but I hardly slept one wink on Thursday night because the wind of Storm Otto kept causing things outside to rattle or fly about making noises and kept waking me up 
The wind's a very powerful thing. Every one of us has experienced its power. Many, many times you feel it blowing in your face. You watch it whipping up magnificent waves in the sea. Well, Jesus is saying that your life and mine can similarly be impacted by the unseen Spirit of God. And that's who Paul introduces us to in Romans chapter 8. And he can speak with great authority himself because we read in Acts chapter 9 that he felt the life-changing impact of the Holy Spirit's life on, or the Holy Spirit's power on his own life. When he was a very, very, very different character from the one that we meet writing this letter. At that time, he was a proud religious bigot who was on the rampage, breathing out murderous threats, trying to use every means at his disposal to persecute Christians, to silence them, to remove any mention of the name of Jesus Christ from his land. His name at that time was Saul. And he was struck down by the voice of Jesus with the result that he couldn't see anymore. And it was only when a Christian called Ananias went and placed his hands on Saul that he could see again. Ananias came and he said, Brother Saul, isn't that lovely? Brother Saul. This man, if he'd met Ananias two or three days before, he would have tried to kill him. And yet Ananias comes and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained strength. And from that day onwards, Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit and fed by God's word. And he became the greatest Christian missionary that this world has ever known. Dear friend, as you reflect on what I've just shared with you, are you not excited? Are you not excited as you dream of what the mighty wind of the Holy Spirit might do in your life as you live as a follower of Jesus in Christ? In verse 2 of Romans 8, Paul explains the legal basis and power by which Christians can be set free from condemnation in the sight of Almighty God. It's wonderful. It's wonderful and liberating. I hope you get this and understand it and that you see that there's a way open for you so that you need never be condemned again. Paul writes, because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now your reaction to that, if you've been following these studies, is, might be to cringe and say, oh no, not more tri diatribe about law. But it's not that. It's not that. There's no need to panic because verse 2 of Romans 8 actually opens our eyes to see and to know what Jesus did for us when he gave his life as a sacrifice for sin. And it's all a fact, you know. This is not fairy tales. You can go to Israel. He died on a Roman cross outside the city of Israel over 2,000 years ago. But what we all need to know and understand and believe and enter into is that something radical entered or happened in the heavenlies whenever Jesus cried out that word, tetelestai, prior to his atoning death. You see, before he did that, everything and everyone on this planet was subjected to a law. 
Paul talks about it here. It was the law of sin and death that God enacted at the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell, bringing a curse, of course, that has affected you and me since the moment that we were born. Every one of you and me were born under the law of sin and death. And so understand that sin is really serious. Sin destroys each of us from the inside out. And so countless generations of people like you and me have lived as helpless slaves to that sinful nature within us, under judgment from that divinely appointed law without any hope of freedom. It's the law of sin and death. Until, until that tetelestai moment on the cross. Because at that moment, hear this, a higher law was introduced that superseded and annulled the law of sin and death forever. We see the same legal principle applied in the great biblical story about a young heroine called Esther. You know that story? She was willing to trust God even to death by asking her husband, who was a pagan king called Xerxes, to cancel a law that he'd been hoodwinked into making by a wicked servant called Haman that called for the death of every single one of God's people in the land. We read about it in the biblical book of Esther. And in Esther chapter 8, we read about a new, higher law that King Xerxes sent out to the people which cancelled this evil law cancelled the death of Jews and demanded judgment on their enemies instead. And so, as a result, we see the glorious outcome in verse 17. This is the Romans 8 of the book of Esther. Verse 17, in every province and every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebration. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Wow, isn't our God a great God who watches over his people? What a great story. And so we thank God for that higher law that brought salvation instead of slaughter. And yet an even greater deliverance happened after Jesus hung his head and died on the cross at Calvary. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse uh, verse 51 we read, At that moment, at that moment when Jesus died, listen to what happened. The curtain of the temple that separated sinful people from the holy God, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, isn't it fascinating that the Greek word that is translated from top is the very same word, an oathen, that is used about spiritual birth from top, from above. It comes from God. It's not of this world. Isn't that amazing? And so exactly the same word. And so something supernatural was unfolding. And note what happened next. We read that the earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. And they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection. They went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And then note this. When the pagan centurion, the very boy who put Jesus on the cross... When the pagan centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Wow, what a change. And so Paul's use of the words through Christ Jesus in Romans chapter 8 and verse 2 
point us to Jesus' saving work on the cross that enacted the glorious new law of the Spirit who gives life, that sets you and me and all sinners free from the law of sin and death. Hallelujah. So let's just stop for a moment and apply that, what we've just heard. Please pay special attention for a moment because the next few moments could become your Tetelestai moment that will bring an end to all of your spiritual woes and struggles with sin. If your eyes are open to see what Jesus can do by his life-giving spirit in your life. Just ask yourself a question. If God could supernaturally change the hearts of really stubborn, powerful, and even violent people like Saul the Jew and the Roman centurion who put Jesus on the cross, and even King Xerxes of Persia, could he not change my life supernaturally too? As the Holy Spirit opens my eyes to see the freedom that Jesus alone can bring me. Listen to me. The answer to that question is a resounding yes. If you'll just humble yourself before God and cry out, Tetelestai, Lord Jesus. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with all the sinful stuff in my life that denies me of the life in all its fullness that you died and rose again to give to me as a gift. I'm done, Lord. Please forgive me for my sinful rebellion. Please wash me and make me new. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can live a fulfilling and fruitful life for the rest of my days, relying on your supernatural resources. My dear friends, I pray, I pray that every one of us would pray that and mean it tonight, that you would just come to Jesus and be gloriously free. In his own words in John chapter 10 and verse 10, we hear him say, if the Son will set you free, you will be free indeed. Free indeed. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad that you came to worship tonight? Isn't God's word just so mighty? In verses 3 and 4, we read how the higher law of the Spirit works. Please note that Jesus never, ever committed sin. That's so important. Jesus never committed sin, otherwise he would have had, he would have been a slave to sin, just like all the rest of us. And so Paul tells us here that what the law was powerless to do, verse 3, because it was weakened by the flesh, i.e., your sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, not in flesh, in sinful flesh. And he sent his own son to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Wow, it's just so good. Hallelujah, we cry as that that liberating truth impacts our hearts and minds. But the big question that follows on from this great revelation is, yeah, What about the future? You know, will this freedom from condemnation last? I mean, how how, how am I to navigate through all of the mess that I'm going to have to face tomorrow and every day at home and at school and college and at work, wherever you happen to be, 
with wave after wave of wokeness and paganism and outright rebellion against anything Christian in our society today. Will it last? Well, Paul answers that question by telling us to prioritize two things. The first thing that we need to do is we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to choose what we set our minds on. That's what you need to do. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you to choose what you set your mind on so that you'll fulfill the obligation that's yours and put to death the misdeeds of the body and really live. That will all happen supernaturally as the Holy Spirit that lives in you helps you. And then the second thing at the end of the passage is that we need also to ask the Holy Spirit to constantly affirm who we are in Christ. So you need to know that you're no longer a slave to sin, but are an adopted child of God, that you're an heir of God, that you're a co-heir with Christ in the kingdom of God that will last forever. Hallelujah. This is what Jesus has done for you. And so our time's nearly gone, but these two things that Paul tells us are crucial for us if we want to live supernaturally char charged lives in these days. And so how must you choose if you want Jesus, what Jesus has done at the cross to transform your life from the inside out every single day for the rest of your life through thick and thin, through good and bad? Well, the answer to that question is that you must choose what Jesus would choose to set his mind on. That's what you need to choose. You need to choose what Jesus chose to set his mind on. Because he was tempted just as you are, all the same thing. But whenever that happened, Jesus repeatedly set his mind on supernatural resources to conquer Satan as he came to try and break in and steal and destroy from Jesus' life. Every single time, he set his mind on the living word of God and he won victories over Satan every single time. There wasn't one failure, not one. You can read that story in Luke chapter 3 for yourself. And so here in Romans 8, Paul's teaching in verses 5 to 8 is very clear. And it shows us really that there's two tribes of people on this earth. There are those who live according to the flesh, to the, the sinful nature. And there are those who have been transformed by Jesus and live according to the Spirit. And the outcome of their lives and their destinies is very, very different. Paul says those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Oh my goodness, how solemn is that? How solemn is that? And yet, if you're in that position, these words are also life-giving. So please take them seriously. Because it's a fact of life that every single one of us are what we believe we are. What we set our minds on in relation to who we are. We reap what we sow in this life. And so ask the Holy Spirit to help you supernaturally to set your mind on the sword of the Spirit that's the Word of God every day. And if you need help with that, you can download the Bible app on your phone and you can read it every day. And there's lots of things, lots of apps that can help you every day to keep your mind focused 
You could use Lectio 365, or you could use the Bible in one year. There's many other resources that you can use to keep your mind and heart and life set on the things of the Spirit. And so please choose life and peace as you choose what you feed your mind on. This is a no-brainer because the alternative is death. Who in this room wants that? Does anybody want that? Would anybody choose that? Verses 12 to 13 give you the motivation to make these choices. Paul writes, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So please, dear brothers and sisters, choose carefully how you feed your minds, especially on the screens that you have. And you think it's all just very private. Nobody else will see. God Almighty sees everything. And lastly, ask the Holy Spirit to constantly affirm who you are in Christ. This is wonderful. Paul's words in 9 to 11 and again in 14 to 17 will change the way that you see yourself from this night for the rest of your lives. So hear this. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Oh, please don't be. Don't let that be said of you. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Wow. The Spirit that you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, full legal standing in God's family. What a gift. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. That's the same Aramaic word that Jesus taught his disciples to use in prayer. The Lord's Prayer that we know so well. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are God's children, listen, then we are heirs. Wow. Heirs of God. And more than that, we are co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And Paul talks about our attitude to sufferings. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. God will give us grace to suffer. Dearly beloved, there's just so much richness in these 18 verses that I've just shared with you that they really need a whole sermon each to shed light on every facet of the glorious diamond that life in Christ is about. Empowered by the Holy Spirit as adopted children and heirs and co-heirs in God's kingdom.
That's wonderful. And so I want to thank you for your patience as I've tried to unpack them for you. But I urge you, every one of you, take time this week to read this passage again, verse by verse, and claim its truths for yourself. And take on this identity that you're no longer in condemnation. You're a child of God in Christ. You're filled with the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. And so you can. You can do whatever he calls you to do in his strength. And so my prayer is that you will know the Holy Spirit who's mentioned 20 times in these verses as a close, close friend and encourager as you face many challenges of life in 2023 and beyond. In John 14, Jesus said that he was going to send the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. That word means a divine enabler who's called beside you. Isn't that lovely? So the Holy Spirit is always there to help you. So that the life of Jesus will be formed in you more and more each day. And you'll keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit each day. So that you can truly rejoice in the victory song of the Christian. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Thanks be to God. Let's just bow for a moment.